Open your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah chapter 6. We're in our seventh lesson from this great Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And uh, even though Nehemiah is an Old Testament book, yet surely there are some good principles that New Testament Christians can learn. One of the things that we've learned here in the book of Nehemiah is that there's a lot of opposition to God's work. This, this book is really a, a stark reminder of how difficult it is to stand for the Lord, to preach the Lord's word when the world is against you, when everyone uh, stands against you, and when you're trying to do God's work in a very hostile society. Not only do we face opposition from without, but sometimes we also find that there's the opposition from right inside of our church that the devil sometimes plants people as his tool to try to detract from the Word of God, to try to tear down the ministry of the church. And so sometimes we face that. Nehemiah was a man who was called by God to do a specific task. He was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and that was a very difficult task to accomplish. He had enemies on every side. He had enemies from the outside, and God showed Nehemiah how he could fight those enemies on the outside and still continue building the wall, and with very skillful application and paying attention to God's word and in prayer, Nehemiah was able to complete this wall in a phenomenally short period of time. But again, this wasn't easy because the Jews on the outside, or Jews' enemies rather, on the outside stood against him with fear and intimidation. They tried to stop his work with mocking and threats. Just about every kind of conceivable way to stop him, these people tried. And when the threats from the outside didn't work, then those problems from the inside began to arise. And so often we find out that the trouble that comes from the inside is far more devastating than what comes from the outside. Usually, you're not looking for the attack to come from the inside. But Nehemiah was such a skilled leader and had such faith in God that he was able to combat that as well. And so he recalled the people to obey God's laws. The people repented of their evil practices, and that building continued. But with so many unsuccessful attempts to stop the rebuilding of this wall... The devil just tried another tactic, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight, because now the devil centers his attack, focuses his attack on the leader. He comes against Nehemiah himself, and with deceit and lies and false accusations, they try to stop God's work. Now, we're going to read about that tonight from Nehemiah chapter 6, and we're going to learn a little bit about what to do when the lies start flowing, when people are telling lies about you, and Nehemiah knew how to handle that. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We've got several verses to read tonight in this sixth chapter. Nehemiah chapter 6, and we'll begin with verse number 1. Now, it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do mischief to me. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, wherein was written, 
It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it. Now, Gashmu is the same person as Geshem in verse number 1. Gashmu saith it, that thou the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words. And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words, Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now therefore, our God, strengthen my hands." Afterward, I came unto the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahetabiel, who was shut up. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night they will come to slay thee. And I said, Should such a man as I flee, who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so and sin, and they might have matter for an evil report that they might reproach me. My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and on the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear." Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. Help us with this message tonight to be clear and concise. May your word go out. May we understand very, very clearly what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to try to talk a little bit fast tonight to try to get things going and get you out of here in a timely manner. But fear, intimidation, threats of violence, opposition from within, none of these things were able to stop Nehemiah from completing the work that God had given him to do. And so when none of those tactics work, Sanballat, if you remember Sanballat, he's one of the enemies of Nehemiah. Sanballat and all of his uh, forces, his evil cohorts, decided that they would focus their attack against Nehemiah. Now here's something that I really don't think that people understand as well as they should today, and that is uh, the pressures and the temptations the discouragements that come on a daily basis against those who are the leaders of God's people. Every day, if you are a leader of God's people, if you're someone who's in a position of leadership, you can expect that there are lies and accusations, there are false things that will be said about you almost every single day. And as a leader, you'll find out that you'll be condemned for things that you do and condemned for things that you don't do. And I want to put this very delicately tonight as I say this, but as a leader, you can be damned by people for certain things that you do, and you can be damned by people for not doing the very same things. And so sometimes you get the feeling when you're leading God's people that you just can't do anything right. You can't please anybody. They're going to be against you no matter what you do. And as a leader, if you're not prepared for those kinds of criticisms, you simply won't make it in the Lord's ministry. I've said before that the hardest people on God's people are God's people. They complain the most. Now, the devil knows this, and he works with people, and if he can't stop the work in some ways or one way, he'll just start attacking the leader. And he knows if he can discredit the leader, then also at the same time he will discredit God's work. And so that's what Nehemiah faced. This was an enemy that through lies and innuendo were trying to destroy him. 
Now, I want to show you this evening a three-pronged attack that these enemies brought against Nehemiah. And the very same tactics that were used against him is still being used in the world today against God's churches and against God's people. And if we don't have our eyes open to this, if we're not aware of what's happening, we will be destroyed. So we've got to watch out for this. Now, the first method of attack that was used against Nehemiah was the idea of compromise. The devil's tactic is that we should compromise and cooperate, and that's what will be good for our ministry. Now, at this point in the story, it's all too apparent that Sanballat and his, and his followers and his friends had failed to stop the rebuilding of the wall. And so they must have stood back and looked at that wall as it was nearly complete. The only thing that's left is that the doors be hung upon the hinges of the gates. And they must have looked at one another and said, what are we going to do now? We haven't been able to stop the building. All that's left is the gates, and now these Jews are going to settle in. Now they're going to be prominent in the land once again. And so they must have reasoned among themselves. There's only one thing left that we can do. We've got to go to Nehemiah, and we've got to offer him a compromise. And we have to make it look like we're conceding defeat. And the best thing for Nehemiah to do is simply to cooperate with us, and then all of us will get along and will work together for the good of us all. Well, the sneaky thing about this attempt is that this plan seemed all too plausible. It seems like a good idea. I mean, for somebody who's looking at it from the outside, it surely looks at the very best thing for Nehemiah to do is to accept the compromise, and then everybody will live happily ever after. Well, here's what these men tried to do. They sent a letter to Nehemiah, and they requested a meeting. And they said, Nehemiah, it's no use for us to say that we haven't opposed you, because certainly we have. We've tried to stop the rebuilding of the wall, and you know that, but we've been unsuccessful. So, Nehemiah, here's what we would like for you to do. We want to set up a meeting to where we can discuss what's taken place. We can get together in a spirit of cooperation. Now, that sounded like a very good idea. But Nehemiah knew from the outset that this was a trap. The reason that these men said, let's meet someplace else. Let's let's don't meet at Jerusalem. Let's go out to a far off place on the edge of the country, on the edge of the border there. And let's meet in this little place and there we'll get together and we'll discuss how we'll work together. Well, Nehemiah knew what they were up to. He knew that this was an attempt to try to kill him. And the reason that they had requested a place of meeting far away from Jerusalem is they might ambush him and take his life from him. So Nehemiah sent word back. He said, I can't come. There's work to do. I'm too busy to come and meet with you. I want you to look at verses 2 through 4 again. Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. So four times Sanballat and Geshem sent these messengers to Nehemiah, and four times Nehemiah refused their request. But as we read the scriptures, it, it sort of looks like that Nehemiah left the, left the door open just a little bit, just a crack in the door, that if they were sincere and they really wanted to work this thing out, they were welcome to come and talk with him. But they had to come to Jerusalem. If they wanted to talk with him, they have to meet with him there. You ever heard the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them? Well, here's a little bit of a twist on that because the spirit of compromise says, if you can't beat them, Join them, 
and then try to take over. And that's what they tried to do. You see, compromise, folks. Compromise is one of the greatest temptations for our ministries today. Compromise. And many Baptist churches have decided that they will compromise when they see the competition of all the ministries that are out there. The best thing for us to do is to give up our Baptist positions and let's just compromise. That'll help us to survive. Now, I want to show you a couple of things about compromise. First of all, never compromise godly principles. We stand upon one revealed truth from the Word of God, and whenever that truth is compromised, and when truth is watered down, it's no longer the truth. A few weeks ago, I was reading in the paper, and I think it was even in a comic strip. And in this comic strip, it said, what is a half-truth? And the answer was, a whole lie. And that is absolutely the truth when it comes to the things of God. A half-truth when it comes to the Word of God ends up being a whole lie. And those whole lies are what will destroy our ministry. And not only that, they destroy the souls of men in hell. You have to preach the truth of God's Word. Now, it's not unusual for our church to get requests from different ministries that are around town. And they say to us, we'd like you to come and we want you to be a part of what we're doing. And their reasoning, ostensibly here, is to work. We're all working for the same place. So let's all get together. Let's put aside our differences. And let's simply work for the common good. A few weeks ago, I was preaching on this from Ephesians on Wednesday night. And I told you then that many people think that unity among Christians is the thing that we are to achieve. Most of all, put aside our differences and achieve unity. And if that means that we have to lay aside doctrine and what we believe the Word of God teaches, if that's what's necessary, that's what we'll do. I don't think so. We can never compromise the Word of God. We can never work with anybody who teaches that salvation can be lost. We can't work with people who don't believe in justification by faith alone. We don't work with people who who don't believe that the scriptures are the only rule of faith and practice for God's people. We don't compromise with people who don't think that the singular purpose of all of God's creation is to magnify and honor the Lord. If they don't believe these things, we will not compromise and we won't cooperate. In this church, we stand upon historic Bible Baptist principles. And friends, we will maintain our identity separate from the compromising doctrine positions of other denominations. Now today, it's it's popular for Baptists to, to drop the name Baptist off their signs. And all of a sudden, the Baptist church has become the community church. You know what that says to me? It says anything goes here. It doesn't matter what your doctrine is. We don't care. We'll take you. We don't care whatever it is that you believe. And you know how these churches got that way? At some point, they decided to let down the bars. They decided to tear down the walls. And what they've done, they've let the enemy come in. And through this compromise, the enemy has now gained a foothold. And so the church has given up things like its beliefs on proper baptism. It's given up beliefs on things like separated living. It's given up its stand about holiness and godliness and and serving the Lord. And what's left in those churches is the acceptance of any doctrine that goes. We just don't care. It doesn't matter anymore. Well, I happen to believe that there are certain foundational items that are in the Word of God that we simply cannot compromise on. 
Now, there may be some things in which our preferences are a little bit different from other people. We may interpret some scriptures a little bit differently. But when it comes to these very core issues of salvation, like salvation by grace through faith alone, when it comes to the vicarious suffering atonement of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the deity of Christ and the second coming of Christ, we will not compromise. We're not going to compromise our position about what constitutes a true baptism. We won't compromise our positions on what constitutes a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will not compromise when people have wrong ideas about the working of the Holy Spirit and they tell people that we need to accept false notions like speaking in tongues and and bringing in all kinds of miracle gifts and that's good for the church today. We will not compromise on those things. We're Baptists here and we're going to teach Baptist doctrine because we believe it's biblical. So if a person, any person doesn't agree with our statement of faith, which, by the way, is backed up by hundreds of scriptures for every point, then we'll not cooperate. God's word is the only basis that we can have for unity. It can't be the traditions of men. It can't be people's ideas. Those things will never be acceptable to us. It must be the word of God. Now, the second thing that we learn about this is that you should stick with your calling. Now, Nehemiah said, I can't come because the work is too great. I have responsibilities here. The work can't stop because you want me to come down and meet with you. Now, I think what this tells us is that the most important work for the church to do is exactly what God has called us to do. We're not to delve off into other things. We're to do the work of a church. Now, that means that a church is really not supposed to be a social organization. And the church is not to be a champion of human rights so that we have a lesbian and gay agenda where we say, well, well, they're humans too, and so we ought to support their rights. That's not the purpose of a church. We're not called to be a political organization that tries to reform the government so that everybody has some kind of a, a quasi-support of Christian themes and principles. Why do I say that? Because it was never the job of the government to do the church's work. And whenever we spend more time lobbying government to be what we want them to be in some kind of Christianized manner, then we're not doing the work that God has called us to do. If we spend more time lobbying the government than we do preaching the gospel of Christ, we've lost the purpose of our church. And let me say this as well, that it's not now nor will it ever be the mission of this church as long as I'm pastor to build an empire for me or for any other leader. Now, today you have pastors that are running all over the country and they're having their seminars and they're trying to be national leaders or spokesmen of this or that. And it doesn't really make any difference whether it's a fundamental mystery or not. Pastors ought to be in their own local churches preaching to their own congregations. There's no such thing as a national church. So why would anyone want to be a national pastor? Our work is to be done right here. Our responsibility is to the church in this locality. And it's not about personalities and building up somebody. It's all about Jesus Christ. And whenever people overshadow the message of Jesus Christ, then the church is going in the wrong direction. Now, all of that stuff, all of those things eventually lead to compromise. And you know why? Because these men cannot maintain their ministries unless they're all things to all people. And so they begin to compromise. We're not interested in that. Nehemiah said, I can't come. The work here is too important. If you want to see me, then you come here. 
Four times they tried him to bite on that compromise, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't surrender to the cooperation with the devil's crowd. Now, it didn't work, but they're not through with him yet because they're going to try another tactic. And the next tactic they try is rumors. They said, now, Nehemiah, if you don't do what we want you to do, then we're going to spread some rumors about you. Look what they did next, verse number 5. Then sent Sanballat, his servant, unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Wherein was written, it is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king according to these words. And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. That means to to the king Ahasuerus over there in Persia. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. Now, you might miss this if you don't know a little bit of background about what's going on. Verse number 5 says this was the fifth attempt to get Nehemiah to come and meet with them. And this time, in the fifth attempt, it says they sent an open letter. What that means is the letter's not sealed. Usually, when a letter was sent by a messenger, it had the seal of the government on it. And if that seal was broken before it got to the intended person, then that messenger was in danger of having his life taken. But their intent here is to plant a rumor. So they don't seal the letter. The messenger is able to read the letter. Now, normally he couldn't do that. So this letter is open. The messenger takes the letter. And as he goes from where he is all the way over there to Jerusalem, where where Nehemiah is, this messenger, as he stops for water, as he takes time to to eat something, to get something for for his horse or his camel, whatever he might be riding... He has the opportunity to read that letter and to share that information with other people. And then, in turn, the people that he shares this information with share it with other people. And what do you have then? You have a rumor. You have a rumor. And everybody knows about rumors that when it's got through 10 or 15 people, it's 10 times worse than it ever was at the beginning. Now, the intent of this is very clear. They said, we're going to spread some rumors about you. We're going to make some false accusations. And Nehemiah, without even firing a shot, we're going to take you down. We're going to tell some things that we don't really know. So this letter contained false information. What does it say? It says that Nehemiah is planning a revolt against the king. The whole reason for him coming to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls was to fortify the city and set himself up as the king. And they said, not only that, but you've already told the prophets that you're going to do this. You've told them to go out and preach and tell everybody that you're taking over. Now, it was a great scheme. And too often, folks, that kind of of thing works. Rumor and gossip works. That's why the devil likes to use it. Three things I want you to notice as it applies to, to us in ministry. Number one, check out the facts. The best way to stop a rumor is drop it. Don't pass it along. But sometimes rumors can become so vicious that you have to do something about them. How do you, how do you deal with it? Well, the first thing you do, you, you, you check out the facts. Find out if it's true or not. And, and that doesn't mean that you go to the person that started the rumor. Go to the people that the rumor's about. Go ask them about it. Is this true? Find out the details. Unfortunately, people sometimes find out too late that a rumor has been started about them and the damage is already done and they can't do anything about it. Several weeks ago, I received an email from a ministry that if I mentioned it, many of you would know who it is. But there was a transcript of a seminar that took place in Southern California. And this, uh, this speaker in the seminar gave an, uh, 
uh, gave an example of how that many fundamental ministries in our country will print information without finding about the facts. And in the process of printing an article, there were some false accusations that were made against another ministry. Those accusations were picked up by someone else. They were repeated. They were repented, reprinted in other papers until finally the person that this rumor was about, this false information was about, lost his ministry among those groups of people. Now, it didn't matter that, that the facts were completely wrong. It didn't matter that all of it was an error. You just had some people who wanted to tell something. They had something to tell, and they didn't check out the facts. And so the damage was done to this man's ministry. And you know, this was something that occurred 15 or 20 years ago. And I have seen it recently even. You can pick up things and find out where that rumor is still being circulated by people who never checked out the facts. Now, the people who knew better and did check out the facts, well, they're back having fellowship with that ministry once again. Just because somebody says something, it does not mean that it's true. And when you say, somebody said this, and I don't know if it's true or not, it probably isn't. And when you hear somebody say, well, it's been reported by some, now you know you're in the area of gossip and rumors. Now, secondly, secondly, gossip destroys ministry. Now, the hope of these false accusers was that at some point, all this misinformation would reach the ears of the king. And when the king finds out about it, Nehemiah's reputation would be shot. All the work that he's trying to do would, would, would cease. Now, folks, whenever you're involved in gossip, you need to understand that you are the tool of the devil. The devil uses that to destroy the church and to destroy the pastor of a church. Gossip is a deadly sin. Proverbs says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but five of six deadly sins have something to do with lying and gossip. A lying tongue, heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief, false witness, and those who sow discord among the brethren. So six of seven of those things can be traced directly or indirectly to gossip. Psalm 101 verse 7 says, He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. There are multiple warnings in the scriptures about this. Ephesians 4.31, Colossians 3.9, Revelation 21.8, Psalm 63.11, Psalm 101, verse 5, Proverbs 10.18, Proverbs 12.22, Proverbs 19.5. I could go on and on and on. The Bible is more clear, probably more clear about this sin than any other that we find written about in Scripture. There are clear implications for the person who tells gossip, and there are clear warnings for a person who... For, for anyone who would perpetrate these lies and deceits about other people. Well, with so much warning that we find in the Scriptures, it ought to be obvious to us that those who are lied against, who are gossiped against, will suffer irreparable harm. Now, Sanballat knew that. His evil companions knew that. And that's something you need to learn as well. Whether you do it with intent or malice, or whether you do it with sheepish innocence, gossip destroys people. And quite frankly, I don't think there are too many people who gossip that do it innocently. How do you fight malicious gossip? You know, it's really hard. It's difficult to. And I only know of one way. There's only one way to combat it. Combat it. Combat rumors. 
with character. The only way that I can see to stop it is to be a person who has the kind of character that people will not believe gossip about you. You know, slander is sometimes so wicked that, that sometimes you can't stop it this way. But if you are a person of integrity, your chances are far better that people won't believe the gossip that's told about you. And that gossip falls on deaf ears. Peter said, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. He also said, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So when he was wrongly accused, Nehemiah steadfastly denied the accusations. Verse number 8 says, Then I sent unto them, saying, There are no such things as thou done as thou sayest. Thou feignest them of thine own heart. So what I think is that these charges against Nehemiah fell on deaf ears. The reason? Because the king knew the character of Nehemiah. He knew what kind of man he was. The people knew what kind of man he was. In our last lesson, we learned that for 12 years, Nehemiah was the governor, and he never took one penny from the people. And the Bible also says that for that 12 years, he fed 150 people out of his own resources. So these people knew there was no reason to believe such terrible, slanderous accusations that had been made. So the rumors didn't work. But the enemy's not through yet because he still has yet another tactic. And number three is threats. The next way that Nehemiah's enemies worked was to issue a false threat to try to get Nehemiah through cowardice to turn from God and his work. So how did they do that? They got a deceitful, lying prophet. And the prophet says, you can trust me. The false prophet's in verse number 10. Afterward, I came unto the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Metabiel, who was shut up, And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us shut the doors of the temple for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night they will come to slay thee. So Shemaiah was a lying prophet. Now I want you to picture what's going on here. Shemaiah sends word secretly to Nehemiah that he has some very discouraging news, some very disturbing news. And this news is so highly secret that if anybody finds out about it, Shemaiah could be killed for even telling Nehemiah what's going on. So Shemaiah, rather, closes up his house. He nails the window shut. He closes the shutters of the house and nails them shut. He closes the door. He turns out the lights. And he's there in secrecy in his house, hiding ostensibly because these people out there are going to kill him if they find out that he's told this message. So the word comes to Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes to Shemaiah's house to find out about this. He knocks on Shemaiah's door. Shemaiah opens very cautiously, looks outside to the right and to the left, and he says, did anybody follow you? Then he ushers him to the house secretly and very quietly, and he begins to tell Nehemiah. He says, word on the street is that you're going to be killed this very night. They're coming to kill you. And if they find out that I'm telling you about this, they're going to kill me too. So he said, here's what we need to do. We need to go to the temple. And we need to shut the doors of the temple. We need to hide there. That's a place of safety. They won't touch us in the temple. Now, that's a pretty good ruse that he's going on, except Nehemiah could see through this too. I mean, he he was too shrewd to believe this. Nehemiah wasn't born yesterday. And so it says here in verse number 11, And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him. 
but that he had pronounced the prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Therefore he was hired, that I should be afraid and do so in sin, and that they might have matter for an evil report that they might reproach me. So Nehemiah correctly assessed that this is a trick. The prophet was hired by Sanballat and Tobiah. It was all fake. It was all a lie. So what does that tell us? Number one, it tells us confidence can be misplaced. Shemaiah was a prophet. He's in a position to be trusted. Many people believe that the indication here is that he was also a priest. If you can't trust a priest, who can you trust? Ask a lot of children who've been molested by priests. And while you're at it, Ask about some of even our Baptist brethren who've been guilty of the very same things of abusing little children. You see, just because a person has the title of doctor or has the title of pastor doesn't mean that he can be trusted. There are preachers in pulpits all across this country that while they're sweet-talking you with their niceties, they've got a dagger under their cloak. They've got their hand in your pocket. They're telling and whispering lies in hypocrisy and very often you can find out that they're living their secret, lie, secret lives. And then also, preachers can deceive you with false doctrines. Whenever a preacher has to be in control of every aspect of the church, when he demands authority, when he takes control over all affairs, and control even of people's lives, you watch him closely because he can't be trusted. Whenever the preacher says, this is the word and I am the authority, don't you ever ask any questions I'm the one who knows what I'm talking about. I know what I need to preach. Don't ever ask me anything. Watch out for him. You can't trust him. Now, friends, what I do is invite you to scrutinize every word I say from this pulpit. And I encourage you to take the Bible, read it, study it, find out for yourself. And you can know for yourself whether I'm telling you the truth. I want you to be Bereans. What does the Bible say about the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11? These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word in all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So I encourage you, receive the word gladly, but don't believe it just because I said it. Search the scriptures, see if it's so. So you'll never hear me say, believe it because I said it and don't ask any questions. I can be wrong. Highly doubtful, but I I could be wrong about something. And if I'm wrong about something, friends, I want to be the first person to know about it. This pulpit is a place for the truth to be preached, the truth only. So don't trust me because I'm the preacher. Trust me because the word is the truth. Now, the second thing, God's word does not change. Now, again, you need a little bit of background on this to understand why I make this statement here. It's because the prophet said to Nehemiah, let's go to the temple for protection. And there are actually two serious problems with that, with that suggestion. The first one is, it was never a Jewish belief that the temple was a place of sanctuary. Now, the heathens often went into temples to hide, to seek sanctuary, and that's because their enemies were afraid of all the gods that they worshipped. And still today, there are some places who consider temples to be a place of sanctuary, and they're afraid to go in them. But the Jews never practiced that. A person never sought refuge in the temple. Now, you remember they did have something called the cities of refuge. That was when a person accidentally killed someone. They could flee to the city of refuge and there they could seek protection until the truth could be found out. But never once do we read in the Bible where God's people ever went to the temple for sanctuary. And then secondly, when Shemaiah said, let us go to the temple, 
He didn't just mean into the temple enclosure. What he meant was to go into the holy place. And by reading the scriptures, we know that no person but a priest was ever permitted to go beyond the altar of burnt offering to go into the holy place. So if Nehemiah had done this, he would have defied God's law. He would have proved that he was a coward and he dishonors God's written word. Here's one thing you need to know. God's word does not change. Nehemiah knew there aren't any exceptions to thus saith the Lord. Now, folks, we do well to remember that. There is no one who has the right to change God's word. Nobody has the right. So Nehemiah could have lost his life for ending into, the, into this holy place. Now, one of these days, friends, all false, false apostles, all people, all false preachers, everybody... Even true preachers, we're all going to stand before God and we're going to give an account of how we've handled the Word of God. That's why I would tell you that if I'm preaching the wrong thing, I want to be the first one to know about it. I want to give an account for what I've said from this pulpit. James said, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn from Nehemiah that the devil has many different tactics. He he has many different avenues of approach to try to tear you down, to try to ruin ministry, and he'll use every opportunity and every means possible to destroy God's work. How is it that Nehemiah is able to survive all of these different attacks? It's his closeness to God. It's his knowledge of God's word. It's the fact that he was a man who was always watching and he was always praying. Now, I want to give you just one last piece of information for your learning tonight. Verse number 14 is another example that we have where Nehemiah prayed. And he said in verse 14, My God, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to their works, and on the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. Now, this is what you call an imprecatory prayer. There was evidently some kind of conspiracy going on between Sanballat, Tobiah, and all the prophets, many of the prophets. And so Nehemiah prayed an imprecatory prayer. What's an imprecatory prayer? Well, here's the definition. It's a prayer for protection and justice. An imprecatory prayer is a prayer for judgment. In other words, this is an appeal to God to mete out his justice and to protect his people. Now, this is not a prayer that you normally see. Now, this is not a prayer for salvation. It's not a prayer for God to bless these people. It's not asking God to change their mind, show them the errors of their way. Nehemiah is praying that God would give them his justice, and he's asking God to do what he promised to do. Now, Peter says, "...the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished." Someday I may talk more about, maybe I'll preach something else about imprecatory prayers. But Nehemiah used this kind of prayer more than once. Now, let me give you some advice. Don't try it at home. Don't do it. Don't be praying against other people. And the only way that you can is if you have a life that's like Nehemiah's. Don't try to pray against people. Do you know what the Bible says? It says, with the same judgment that you pass on other people, you will be judged by So you don't want to pray these kind of prayers unless you're a man like Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah didn't have any problem at all having this kind of prayer answered. Why? Because he was a man of courage and a man of integrity, a man who stood alone upon the word of God. No matter what the opposition, he stood for God. He never judged unjustly. And that's how we need to fight. Lies, lies, and more lies. We can only do it by being people of character 
being people of integrity and standing on the word of God alone. Don't compromise. Stick with God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. And Lord, uh, maybe some of the things that we said are disturbing to some people. Maybe they upset in some ways. But we make no apologies for standing upon the word of God. We make no apologies for preaching what we believe to be the truth. And there's a reason why we preach what we preach, because this is what we think that you'd have us to do. Lord, we pray that you might bless in this invitation tonight, draw us closer to you, help us to understand your words better. And may we be people of honesty, integrity. May we stand upon your word and be people of prayer. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.